Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Private Equity Talks. Today we are joined by Rutland Partners and HCC. And um, so on the line with me today, I have David Wardrop, partner at Rutland, and Julian Aitken, CEO at HCC. Hi guys, great to have you on. Great. Um, so just before we get started, I know um, our audience are likely to know um, quite a bit about Rutland Partners, but, but keen to get an introduction from you both and, and keen to get a bit of an overview on HCC as well. Um, so David, perhaps you could start and then Julian, if you could follow. No problem. Um, so David Wardrop, partner at Rutland Partners. Um, Rutland is a special situations investor uh, dealing with situations where there is complexity or change that's going through um, that requires a sort of involved hands-on sort of approach to things. Uh, personally, I've been involved in HCC from the very beginning, um, involved in the very original transaction uh, and I'm involved ever since we invested uh, in August 2019. Great, thanks David. And Julian, hi, great to have you on as well. Thank you. Um, so I was also very lucky uh, to be involved uh, since the start of the transaction uh, in a uh, less uh, involved in the initial stages, um, but was part of the buy team, which was uh, was very vital. Uh, my background prior to this was um, a lot of blue chip FMCG businesses, mainly in the drinks industry, and also running a contract bottler a number of years ago as well. So um, it gave me a, an ideal opportunity to look at whether this was a, a good investment longer term. Definitely, and clearly kind of there were those synergies there and I look forward to, to hearing about them. Um, so to, to begin, um, clearly today we're going to be looking at um, how, how Rutland have worked with HCC and how you've both worked in, in partnership together as well. So David, if you could tell us a bit about the um, kind of the background to the investment um, and the challenges that you faced in kind of the, the carve out. Uh, so HCC was a privately owned business. Um, it had, it's part of a wider group. There was a sister company within the group, which is a owner of drinks brands, mm -hmm. uh, and HCC, a separate organisation within that, which was a uh, contract canner, so producing drinks um, or canning drinks on behalf of both the sister company, but also a number of third party brands as well. Um, and it's that, that, that fact, actually, which caused a lot of the complexity in, in the original deal. Um, something we'd seen very similarly when we invested in, in Millbrook, actually, a few years ago, where you had um, a group selling a company, but also wanted to maintain a commercial relationship between the two going forward. So as part of the original deal, we put in together, together a, a long-term supply agreement between the two businesses so that whilst they were separating corporately actually commercially there was going to be a long-term relationship between the two sure and, and what the other thing i guess complexity was whilst they were separate organizations in terms of separate customers separate suppliers actually there was a lot of shared functions um, that sat between the two so there was a traditional carve-out element to the transaction and, <clears throat> and a large part of that was actually bringing in a new team or a new senior team to run the organization which is where Julian and others all came in as part of the deal. Definitely, definitely great. And I guess that kind of leads us on well to, to where Julian came in. So could you kind of give us a bit of a background in terms of, of what when you first partnered with Rutland and HCC um, and kind of perhaps what value creation opportunities you identified as well? 
Yeah, so I've been very lucky. I was uh, working for our now chairman in, a, in another private equity backs business, um, and Rutland had worked with him before. Uh, so they approached him, and in turn, he approached me. Um, I think for, for me, the really key thing was I'd been at Britvic and Pepsi when there'd been a move from canning into plastic bottles okay. uh, a lot of years ago now. Um, and it's interesting how things become full circle. Um, we were in a place where plastic was starting to become uh, the enemy back in 2018 when we, when we started looking at the business. Mm. And there were key programs on the, the television, sort of Hugh Fernley Whistlesall's uh, plastics program. Um, so we could see that there was definitely a shift in terms of consumer uh, attitude towards recycling, sustainability, et cetera. Um, yeah, and we're now seeing uh, last year that actually 82% of all aluminium beverage cans in the UK have been recycled. Um, and we can see that actually a can can go from being drunk to being back on the shelf as a recycled can within six weeks. So obviously uh, a big uh, environmental aspect to this. Um, mm. Also, we had the opportunity to purchase a, a new building and a new production line at the same time that we, we bought the existing business. And what that would allow us to do would be to quadruple uh, the volume that we were producing. Uh, so with a significant amount of capex, um, which we have done between 2020 and 2021, um, we've now seen our capacity quadruple. Um, and as we sit here now, we have got to a point where both are, we have, we've now implemented our second line, um, which is three times bigger than our first line, um, mm. and that is in up and running and commercially producing products. Um, I think the other element for us was that we had quite high customer concentration with a couple of very large customers at this point, at the point of purchase. Um, and our key was to diversify and move into not only other customers, but different categories. So actually we were the far first to produce wine in a can in the UK. We were the first to produce uh, seltzers in the UK. Um, so we've been innovators as a business. Um, and we could clearly see that actually, if we just diversified our customer range, which we've subsequently done as well, um, it would lead to uh, massive value creation. Definitely, definitely. I guess kind of the business is is a testament of kind of the, the shift in consumer behaviour. Um, and clearly it's got that huge ESG angle, that sustainability angle as well for the business. So it's, it's clearly kind of one to watch, I think. Um, and David, I guess this was just something that you identified early on as well and the potential growth that that HCC clearly um, is, is able to, to achieve. It was, yeah. I mean, Julian and ourselves sort of had a shared vision for for HCC, um, very much centered on what, what Julian was saying there around, you know, a shift towards sustainability in terms of a packaging material being cans versus plastics and, and versus bottles as well. Um, but also just a general trend within UK consumers around um, authenticity of brands, yeah. provenance of brands, just choice in general, which plays very well to the type of customer that ACC serves, which is your small to, to medium sized brands or certainly run sizes, um, which is what ACC is called customer base. And they tend to be the, the more interesting, higher growth brands that are sort of coming into to, to, to the UK market. So um, yeah. yeah, very much a shared vision on the way in, uh, which is helpful kind of working together on the way in and, and sort of, you know, it's been a um, kind of common goals since we bought the, the business as well. 
Definitely, definitely, it seems so. And I guess um, what we're kind of looking to discuss mostly today is, is around the people. And it's clear that to, to be able to drive this growth, you need the right people leading the business. Um, and so, so Rutland, I guess it's one of your, your kind of key skill sets in terms of working with management teams to develop businesses further, to kind of develop those management teams to enable them to develop businesses further. Um, so David, perhaps could you give some examples of how Rutland um, does this, how you look to kind of strength, strengthen management teams in your portfolio? Yeah, um, so as you say, I mean, uh, Rutland in terms of the type of businesses we get involved in, there's often a lot of change, a lot of complexity, and that is often in relation to the management team. So there's often a strong element of a sort of management transition story that exists across a number of different situations. That was true in ACC, in terms of there's a new CEO coming in, the finance director, uh, there was a new finance director requirement in terms of the existing one staying for the old um, sister business. And there was a whole series of other kind of roles um, and areas that kind of needed to, to be developed. Mm. Um, in, in terms of other examples, perhaps a, a good example of a of a more transition type arrangement was in a business called Omar, um, which I'm sort of also sort of involved in, um, where uh, there the previous CEO and, and chairman wanted transition to being non-exec over time. Um, he's also the finance director there was due to retire shortly, and there was a number of other roles within the organisation where there was succession to be managed or there was a retirement um, to be done. So we worked a lot with, um, with the previous CEO to manage that transition, you know, trying to identify the, not just the skill sets that required um, within the organization, both for now, but also where we wanted the business to, to get to, um, but also making sure that the personalities and, and the fit kind of made sense once you got to the end of it and each yeah. role made sense in the context of the wider hires, um, that you were doing um so yes we, we, because we're very familiar they're all each situation is always very different um mm. but, but we're kind of very familiar sort of managing the sort of development and changes of, of, of teams over yeah yeah it seems so and in in the case of HTC in particular how involved has Rutland been in terms of shaping the management team um yeah what what are your thoughts there yeah I, I think it's um I guess it's sort of shaping the team and, and more generally we do, um, we are actively involved, um, but I guess importantly what we try not to do is, is interfere in the organisation and, and try and find the balance. You know, we're, I guess we're always clear with Julian and, and the team about where the responsibilities and roles um, lie, but I think um, HCC is no different to other things we're involved in because there's a lot going on, both in terms of management change and um, capital develops into the the organization is a very large capex project which julian was mentioning earlier by necessity you just end up having a much more active dialogue with julian yeah. and the rest of the team because um there's so much more to talk about and on a month-to-month -month basis um but but ultimately yeah. you know uh, you know the julian and the team run the organization but we, we sort of do try and maintain a lot of a lot of contact uh, yeah. as, you, as you go through Definitely, definitely. And Julian, what are your thoughts? Are you happy with how David and the team are, are kind of working alongside you? I know you're sat side by side, so um, <laughs> I doubt you're going to say no, but um, yeah, where, where can Rutland provide kind of valuable assistance for, for yourself and the management? 
I think communication is, is absolutely the key with this, and it has been since day one. Um, I've worked in, in previous environments where either a combination of the communication was extremely poor um, and the PE house got quite a lot of surprises. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, we've, we've had our challenges, as you would expect, but there have never been any surprises for Rutland because we have a very clear communication mm. um, with Rutland. And if anything, I guess people would probably say we, we over-communicate, um, but that's because we've been integral since pre, pre-deal, which is, is key. Um, and I think the, the, the key thing for us was as all being on the same page, So, yes. um, which sounds like a very simple thing to say. Uh, but to be fair to say, there are no hidden agendas. Everybody's been very clear from the outset what we are looking to achieve. Um, mm. And the strategy has always been agreed by both parties. Um, so everybody's been pulling in absolutely the same direction. Um, so you just save so much time by not having separate agendas or, or anything similar. So that, that's made a, a massive difference to, to us as a business in terms of the speed we've been able to, to move forward at. Yeah, completely, completely. I think you're right there in saying kind of communication is that key and perhaps sometimes over-communicating can assist when you may kind of come up to a hurdle and no one can point the finger in the wrong direction and blame someone else because everyone is held accountable for what they've done and has communicated what they're doing as well. Um, okay, and so so at HCC and part of the part of the investment, there has been kind of um, hiring of the chair and um, so part of so as part of the original investment, um, the industry chair was appointed at HCC. Um, so I guess a question to both of you here, actually. So what qualities should a good chair demonstrate? Um, and how have you worked with the, the chair as well, second point, kind of to develop the business? Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I guess from a qualities perspective, for me, um, integrity is, is absolutely key um, before you even start. Um, having somebody who's a very good communicator, but also a very good listener, um, mm. having the passion um, and the vision uh, to support the management team and to work with them, um, you know, approachability, making it very easy, um, a very good relationship with our with our chairman, um, and also the ability to manage multiple stakeholders. Um, that's been, you know, uh, is always a challenge in terms of what needs to be done. So. Mm. Um, you know, and I think to stay grounded really through the challenging times um, is is something that's absolutely key. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and David, what are your thoughts? Kind of perhaps what what qualities or what background perhaps did the chair need to have when you were looking to to recruit a chair for for HEC? Uh, I echo what Julian said. Really, um, I think what was um, particularly relevant here, but not relevant in all situations, is is um, the fact that, that Robert, his experience has been in this in the similar industry, well, the same industry, and, and in similar industries over time. So he, you know, he can bring a lot in terms of um, uh, helping to develop HCC in in particular. Um, yeah. But I think it is, you know, a lot of it's around just having open communication lines. You know, we very much it's um, you know, both Julian and I communicate regularly with Robert um, he's kind of sat there as part of a team rather than being sat there as a conduit between the two of us and actually it's a sort of um, three-party sort of way conversation as opposed to sort of being something that's done in in, in kind of series so um, yeah I, I think it's it's been around communication absolutely around integrity industry experience as well and it's been those things that, um, yeah, that have sort of been key in this particular Definitely. situation 
Definitely, definitely. And I think what's a running theme kind of throughout our discussion today, perhaps, is that the strength of communication and the importance of that. Um, and, and as you said, Julian, kind of the ability of a chair to be able to manage multiple stakeholders and manage that that board and different differing opinions, perhaps, um, to get the best outcome to the company. Um, and then, Julian, as you as you mentioned earlier, your kind of previous roles have involved working with MP-backed businesses as well. Um, so from kind of the, the series of positions in the companies you've worked in, um, what would you say is key to successful communication between management and financial sponsors? I, I think, you know, the transparency, whether it's good or bad, is kind of the, num the number one thing I would advocate. Um, and I said, we, we probably over-communicate good or bad as we have done through the, the, the history of the investment so far. Um, we very clearly as a as a group um, of both parties had a very clear entry and exit strategy so we knew exactly what we were aiming for what we were looking to achieve when we were looking to achieve it um, and that i think has allowed everybody to have really clear focus on what we're trying to achieve yeah uh, so i think that that was helped as i've, I've kind of, uh, said before in terms of being part of the buy team it's allowed us to accelerate that particularly quickly and mm -hmm. allowed us to all have the agreement on what our strategy was for a business um, moving forward. Sure, sure, that makes sense. And are there any examples that you can think of where communication hasn't been as successful and kind of what perhaps were the reasons for that or what, what took place that made the communications break down perhaps between management and, and financial sponsor? I think that's quite a tough one because I, I generally think that we do over-communicate a heck of a lot and... <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I'll perhaps let, let David think about that one for, for a minute, but I think it's, uh, you know, D David and I would speak at least once a week, um, if not more than that. Um, so the communication uh, through, as I say, both both good times and bad times um, has, has been really key. Uh, and, I, and I experienced in previous lives uh, where that went horribly wrong previously. So I was very keen when I took the role on to ensure that we did over-communicate um, and, and that has been one of the absolute keys for us um, as a successful wider team to make things happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess kind of, um, yeah, having that experience of where it hasn't gone so well um, has, has prepared you well now. Um, David, perhaps maybe not at HCC, but are there any examples where there has been a breakdown in communications? Obviously, you don't need to name names, um, <laughs> but but where, well, where are examples where there can be kind of a lack of communication if the management team aren't perhaps telling you everything you need to know or, or have you got any kind of past experiences? Uh, genuinely, thankfully not, because I guess star-wise, I've always tried to encourage that kind of openness. Um, mm. I, I guess I'll also say that on the, it's not just about the sort of the, the bad news, which often people don't want to tell you about. It's just, you know, inevitably in any investment, things change over time and you know the opportunities change and if you if you keep that level of communication going in a positive way then it helps you to adapt to whatever it is you know the positive and and the negative so yeah. um, because you know you set out on a plan you know three years previously to, to to do something and often that isn't just it's just not the way it turns out so um, by having that dialogue it just helps you to be more reactive to, to whatever it is that you need to be reactive to Mm -hmm. um, over time um, yeah yeah definitely perfect and um, well time has, has flown already so we're coming to the end of the conversation but we're keen to kind of look at um what what your plans are going forward um 
So a two-part question here again, actually. So David, perhaps you could start on in terms of any hurdles you've had to overcome since since backing HCC, um, and kind of, and then also going forwards, what what are your development plans for the business? Um, and then perhaps Julian, you can follow on from that as well. Um, so I guess uh, I suppose it's been in a couple of phases, really. The, the initial phase was around. Um, ACC becoming a standalone business so there was very much that initial separation um, but then the story for has always been around capacity expansion and as Judith was saying earlier quite significant capacity expansion so that's been in multiple phases as well um, the most recent phase has been developing a second facility which you know, is the sort of the fourfold increase in capacity and I think in itself would have been a complex project of undertaking in any environment, but in the context of everything that's kind of happened over the last two years with the pandemic, um, that's made it particularly challenging um, just for managing the day-to-day -day here, um, both in terms of the ongoing business, but also the projects as well, but there's also been, um, there's been international suppliers involved and just a whole myriad of different things which have sort of added to, to the challenge. Now, Thankfully, with the good team uh, and a sort of positive backdrop in terms of demand from customers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the second facility is now up and running, but it's certainly been, um, yes, it's been uh, keep everyone quite busy over that particular that time and, and so much more so than perhaps it would have done ordinarily. Yeah, 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 definitely. That makes sense. And and Julian, do you, um, anything to add? <laughs> I think um, what we've done here is we, we've taken a factory and turned it into a business. Um, you know, this historically was a factory for a different business and we've had to come along and, and professionalize it and turn it as say from, from that factory into a very different animal. Um, as David says, um, it is uh, and has been a very challenging period uh, with a, a very large um, project to, to put in a new line from scratch um, and we started that earlier this year and so we're now up and running. Um, I am very pleased to say that did actually meet the original business case um, in terms of when it was when it was due to happen, uh, but we have all had a heck of a lot of sleepless nights um, with COVID. Um, yeah. To say we we never we haven't lost a single production minute to COVID. Um, we very much from March the twenty third last year segmented people and really put people into um, to groups. So there was no you know cross functional um, element uh, of people kind of uh, trying to. Uh, Add, yeah, add uh, COVID across the factory. Um, and, you know, in this same point of time, we've moved from 54 people to 116 people in terms of expanding. So, yeah, it's been it's been quite a challenge. Um, it's uh, It's been very enjoyable. And and I now see cans flying past my window. Um, <laughs> it's it's very, yeah, very rewarding. But I think I need a holiday now. I can imagine. I can imagine. It sounds like you've done a lot in a very short period of time. But but good luck for, for the future and the rest of the development of the business. Um, I'm going to put you both on the spot now, just, just as a final a final little note before we close. Um, could you both perhaps give a to your top tip? It could be something we've already discussed, but your top tip for successfully managing a carve-out transaction. Uh, I don't mind. Oh, okay, I'll go first. I, I think the absolute key thing for me was being part of, part of the buy team on the way in. That if I could give any advice to anybody um, and management coming in, uh, I've done both being part of the buy team and also being parachuted in when one deal's been done. Mm. It has allowed us 
during the, the part of the purchasing process, not to understand, not only to understand the business much better, to give us a structure of what we wanted to do with it, um, but also to build a relationship with Rutland over that period of time when we were in the, the buy process. So that's absolutely my, my advice for, for any other PE company out there. Great, great. Having that that inside insights and kind of being there from the start to, to know the business inside out. Um, great. And, and David, your top tip? Um, I shall say not because Julian is here, but actually uh, it's around team. Uh, you know, you're, um, it, you're often adding um, uh, people to the management team as part of a carve-out process. Um, because often they're not standalone businesses and they're right. And actually getting those decisions right and getting the right people in to help you manage it is, yeah, it is the fundamental element to it. Because you're, there's lots of important things to do around planning and thinking about what you need to do when the carve-out happens. But fundamentally, you're reliant on individuals to resolve whatever issues that come up. And there's only so much planning you can do for the reality on, on the other side. So um yeah getting the right people perhaps over resourcing sometimes in certain areas you know we brought him interim resource relatively early on just to help with a lot of the initial um uh tr transition and and that's um, that that's the bit that really 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 helps yeah yeah definitely i guess it, it's probably the the biggest challenge in terms of getting the right people but also the biggest advantage once you have them of leading the business to, to greater success um, but yeah that takes us to the the end of our of our session today and um, David Julian it's been a pleasure speaking with you so thank you so much um, and thank you all for listening.